Welcome to Kuden, the radio show and podcast for self-defense and martial arts news, interviews, techniques, and history. Hosted by Sheehan Jeffrey Miller and Shidoshi Eric White. Sheehan Miller is the 13th degree black belt and master instructor of Warrior Concepts International in Sunbury, Pennsylvania. Shidoshi Miller's martial arts career spans over 30 years and has taken him around the world to train with some of the world's best martial arts masters. Shidoshi Eric White has been a student of Sheehan Miller's for over a decade. Together, they will answer your questions, discuss techniques, history, and current issues important to you, the self-defense-minded citizen and the practicing martial artist. Submit your questions by email to warriorc at warrior-concepts-online.com. Hello, happy Friday. Welcome to Kuden. Great to have you with us. Uh, for those of you live with us on the show, uh, I am surrounded. I've got a Jeff to my left and a Jeff to my right. Uh, we've, got, <laughs> we've got special guests with us today we'll be uh, talking to here in just a, in a brief moment, and I'll, I'll introduce. But, uh, sir, great to have you on the call. I hope, hopefully your week's been going smooth. Thank well, you. I don't know about smooth, but busy. Yeah. <laughs> Busy. Well, you sound better. I mean, last last week I was making fun that uh, I could put you on my potential attack list because uh, you had a, had a cold, but uh, you sound much better. Yeah, I'm much better now. I've recovered yeah. quickly. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. But you can, like I told you before the call started, you can leave me on your list. It's okay. It's okay. Sneak up on me. <laughs> Go ahead, you could be try. my personal Kato if you remember the old Pink Panther. I Panthers love that. Yeah. Shows and stuff. Yeah, you can be my own personal Kato. I could I could use one of those. And there was never a good moment for. For Cato, I remember he would jump out of something yeah. like the closet or behind the bed, and uh, Pink Panther would would say, uh, "Not now, Cato." Like it's never a good time. Right. Uh, it was never a good time, but that was the best time, right? That was, right, that was right. The best time. Right? <laughs> and it's kind of like the people that uh, you know have good intentions about uh, either getting to martial arts training or getting back to their martial arts training. You know, just I don't know. It's just not a good time. You know, when when there's a better time. You know what? There's no better time. Um, there, there will never be a good time, right? It's, yeah. it's always going to be uncomfortable. It's amazing that to me when people say that, but if you watch them for any short amount of time, right, they have no problem making time in their life to watch, you know, my favorite saying is, right, to watch that 370th rerun of that yeah. TV show or movie that they've watched over and over again, uh, or they have no shortage of time uh, liking and sharing memes on Facebook, but they can't quite find the time to get to training. Right. You know, life is just too full. It's just too busy. So exactly. I need to I need to set up that dojo with the drive up window. <laughs> I, I really think that would make money. We put yeah, up window sure. number one. You come up. You order technique twenty seven, whatever it is. You pay me your money. You go up the technique or the to window number two, which has to be sliding glass doors because we might have to kick you. <laughs> then we punch you in the face or choke you or kick you or whatever it is through your car window, whatever the technique is, hand you the video and tell you, we'll see you next time. Right. Um, I think that would work. I, yeah, I think it would it work. Might. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, I don't know. <laughs> well, if it think, ever Jeff? comes around, that that's where you first heard it. <laughs> first heard it here on Kuden. Drive up that's right. martial well, arts. See, there's the idea. Right. <laughs> drive up. Yeah, that's right. The dojo with a drive up window. Oh. So anyway, 
we've got we've got a special guest with us. Uh, his name is Jeff Brown. He's former law enforcement officer, former criminal investigator, and former chief of police. He's got many years of experience working in armed security, protective services on a Department of Homeland Security assignment, and has worked covert surveillance and undercover operations all across the United States, from Los Angeles to New York City. Uh, he's in the Topeka area now, uh, middle of the. So we've got the whole kind of nation covered today with Mr. Miller being out in Pennsylvania. I'm here in California, and Jeff's covering the middle of the country, and he's uh, certified as a law enforcement and security defense uh, defensive tactics instructor and is currently a bouncer in a nightclub. He's, of course, very familiar with violence and street fighting, as well as dealing with violent suspects under the influence of alcohol and drugs. And Jeff is the founder of DTAC Combatives, uh, Combatives and holds a Shodan ranking in Bunjinkan. Uh, Sandan ranking in Aikijutsu and uh, ranking in various other styles and is also a black belt and certified Krav Maga instructor and primarily focused on reality-based combatives. Uh, Jeff Brown, welcome to Kuden. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me on. Now, now that you've uh, introduced him and his credentials sound that good, I'm going to hang up and Jeff, it's your show. <laughs> <laughs> it's not really that impressive. All right, all right, that, fair enough. All right, you, you play yours off like I play mine off. So you know, anyway, it is what now, it is. Right? I, I kind of wanted to start off by asking, you know, with all your various forms of training, your extensive career in law enforcement, security, what is kind of the one? major thread you would say runs through, kind of links them all, and then kind of secondary to that, where do they most differ? Well, I've always been an explorer, and, you know, like many people, I was, you know, kind of looking for that next greatest thing. And, you know, over the years, you know, I've experimented, played around with, enrolled in, and taken different classes, and had different teachers. And, the common thread that I found was is very few of them really addressed what I needed for working on the street as a police officer uh, and as well as the other, you know, work that I was doing in the security industry. Um, so the common thread was really I was looking for the answer, uh, but at the same time I really wasn't finding it for the most part. Hmm. That sounds familiar. Yeah. Wow. So, where did you say? Where would you say? You know, in some of these various um, different styles you've trained in, where, where do they most differ between you know your time at the Bujinkan versus Aikijutsu uh, or Krav Maga? Well, that's a good question. You know, I think uh, Aikijutsu, Hapkido, um, you know that those styles really don't. Um, uh, they're not really that much different than, than the Bujinkan as far as concepts and principles of the, the the techniques. You know, if you're looking at, you know, the Kihan Hapo, uh, you know, the Mote Gyaku and, you know, the Urugyaku, those are all uh, fundamentals and concepts that are taught in other styles, especially Aiki-based styles. Uh, obviously, there are other styles that don't touch any types of joint locking, and so what I really sought after, especially as a law enforcement officer, it was real common to look at pain compliance or type of arresting type of uh, techniques that I wanted to be able to control, you know, the person I was taking into custody. Uh, mm. What I found was that, you know, that works good on maybe a passive 
resistant person, um, but the individual that was really determined to fight and to really determined to uh, not go to jail, that was willing to do anything it took to, to remain free and willing to cause, you know, injury to myself or to my colleagues, I found that, uh, you know, the type of joint manipulation stuff worked great on, you know, somewhat compliant, somewhat resistant people. But I found that it was not adequately answering the questions and, and dealing with the issues that I needed to be addressed, you know, with an actively aggressive fighter. Um, you know, obviously, you know, throughout all the training, you know, I've always been, you know, recognizing the need for uh, good ground fighting skills. Um, I just, you know, kind of avoided and shied away from all the sporting, you know, approaches to it. Now, Krav Maga is, is a little bit different in, in uh, uh, kind of is what I teach now primarily uh, with the DTAC combatives. Uh, kind of blended together is it addresses spontaneous attacks and against people that are not compliant. You know, we've all heard it said, you know, uh, you know, need to learn how to be a good uke. Well, that's mm. great in the dojo, but it sure isn't great on the street because the bad guy's never going to attack you right. So what I learned with the traditional martial arts, including the Bujinkan, was I learned the science and the mechanics of of these concepts and techniques, but the Krav Maga kind of brought it all home for me, and the DTAC Combatives program really just kind of brings it home, and it says, hey, listen, you know, there's varying levels of, of a fight, and these are things that could occur within a fight, but not necessarily is somebody going to just grab your wrist or grab your lapel and stand there mm -hmm. while you do a technique. Mm hmm and um you know we we all have our uh we all have our background and experience with training mm -hmm. you know what i mean so uh i consider myself very very lucky <clears throat> and that would be con uh, contradicted by lots of people that are training these days but i can count myself very lucky that i began training in uh Nijisu in the in 1980 right where mm -hmm. What a lot of these other folks with uh, Krav Maga and some of these other uh, uh, more combative systems like Sistema and things like that, um, right. you know that they're that they're doing right. I mean that's what we were doing. Everything was everything was uh, you know you, you learn the form and then you move on to uh, more and more resistance to things. I mean Eric yes. was training you know for quite a while, and the number of people that are actually in my long distance training program that. Uh, when I first started uh, doing some online training back in, I don't know, what was that, 2008 maybe, something like that, um, the number of them that, that jumped onto a webinar or got involved in a program and said, you know, I was I, I was training in the 80s and I went away, you know, life pulled me away or whatever for 10, 20 years, whatever it was, and they came back and they looked at it and went, what the hell happened? Yeah, I mean, yeah. There was such a huge change, right? Um, so... That was a problem. Then they were looking around trying to find things, and for a bunch of these guys, or they had read early things about the training, and but when they went to training groups or they went to dojo or you know whatever, uh, even online videos, they're seeing stuff that didn't look any different than any other styled martial arts. 
yeah, the technique yeah. might vary here or there, but there's only so many things you could do to another human body, right? So, yes. but it looked it looked just as stylized, just as, you know, the, what happened to the zero-point nebulous idea where Ninja 2 is not a style? Well, it's become a style, right? So they mm-hmm. said, you know, they were they were just about to jump ship and go find something else and bumped into what I was teaching. So, uh, you know, and I, I certainly have never... I've never, I've always been the black sheep with Fujikon, or one of them anyway. <laughs> not that, you know, I'm not one of the bad criminal elements. It's just one of those things where I, like you, had that same kind of street experience. I mean, I got beat up mm-hmm. as a kid growing up because I was a smart kid, and I got, you know, then I got into law enforcement and security, and none of the other training that I, none of the other styles or systems that I got involved in matched that reality. So, right. you know, and even the sparring, when when these people say there's no better place to test your skills than in a sport ring, I have my opinion about that. What, what What's yours? Well, sports, you know, baseball is a sport. Football is a sport. But mm-hmm. when you go, you don't say that you're going to go see baseball. You say that you're going to go see a baseball game. Right. Well, MMA is a sport. And to me, you know, and I know I offend people when I say this, but MMA is a game. Okay, there are Mm -hmm. rules, there are referees, Mm -hmm. there are people that can throw in the towel. And, yes, there is stress and there is risk of injury, you know, minor injuries and stuff, maybe even some major injuries if you're not truly prepared for it. But quite honestly, it's a game. And one of the the big things that I teach – my students and and the people that uh, run in my circle is risk is real on the street. And we, you know, I've, I've, you know, grappled plenty of guys at Brazilian jiu-jitsu classes and stuff, and they do techniques that, that are great because they're not worried about me smashing my knee into their groin or poking them in the eye. (laughs) Exactly. Pulling out a knife when we grapple in, in our school, we, we have training knives that we keep in our pockets. And, yeah. um, you know, yeah. we may Not be too. grappling on the ground and, you know, if we're, you know, we train at the park and, and at the lake and stuff. And, you know, I might just pick up some dirt or sand and throw it on you, you know, just mm-hmm. say, hey, you know, it kind of makes things a little bit different. Um, you know, and, and from my experience working in, in the club scene, the nightclub scene, um, you know, I was, uh, you know, I've had to fight people on the ground. Uh, and the problem is, is a lot of these drunk guys that want to fight you, their friends are there too. And I've been jumped on, uh, you know, while I'm dealing with one individual, his buddies, you know, obviously they're going to naturally protect their friend. Uh, it just, fortunately, I had more friends than they did. So it, it just got, it just escalated. So for me, I believe that, that we need to, have a distinction between reality-based fight training and and sports. Sports are a game. It's entertainment. Uh, there's a winner and a loser, but both guys, gals go home. Um, and you know, yeah, nobody's going out to the truck day. after the nobody's going out to the truck after the bout, waiting for you to come out so they can shoot you in the face. Right? Exactly, so, uh, exactly. And I've had to deal with that at work. And it, sure. you know, it's really there's the risk is is real. Um, on the street, uh, the risk is minimal in the ring. 
Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it's, and that's my, my thing. When, when folks talk about, the, you know, it's the best place to, to, uh, to test your skills, if you look at all the rules, I can't do what I've done on the street and slip a mushadori on somebody and blow out their shoulder. That just, yeah. you know, you're just not allowed yeah. to do it, right? And on top of that, you put gloves on. Now my strikes don't have the same kind of bite that they would have, and I have to take on a certain dynamic with my strikes just to get a little bit more blunt force trauma to sink in when, you know, a thumb tip in the right spot with a third of the speed yeah. has the same kind yeah. of impact as a, you know, as a, as a fist. So, um, you know, I, I agree. Um, and I also believe that no matter what you do, you just dojo training in the ring or anything like that. It's not a real, not that they're not fighting, not that it's not a contest, but it's not the same kind of survival uh, paradigm that goes on on the street. You know, and you were talking exactly. about being jumped. You know, you're you're wrestling one guy down and his friends jump you. Uh, you know, you've been in law enforcement, and I'm, if you haven't experienced this, I'll be extremely surprised. Where you get called for a domestic disturbance, and you know, you walk in the place. You know, she's been assaulted or whatever. She wants him out of here until you put him in cuffs. He starts fighting or saying something about you hurting him, and the next thing you know, she becomes his ally again and jumps on yes. you, and then you've got to worry about not just dealing with her, you know, the bouncer in the, in the, in the bar. And that's, this is not taking away from that, but they typically don't have to worry about the gun on their hip being pulled by somebody who's jumping on their back, right? Right. So not only yeah. do you have to deal with this person, but you have to keep your ass for your PR24 or your, you know, whatever club you have and your gun and everything. You have to keep that under control as well. So, uh, you know, and, and that's, that's one of the things I think is missing from a lot of the folks that um, do concealed carry or just, you know, like me, will carry a clip knife. You know, I'm, I'm rarely, if yeah. ever, not armed, right? So when, when was the last time they trained with their techniques and managed you know, a weapon that they were, that they were yes. carrying or, uh, yes. or simultaneously wild manhandling somebody allowed their hands to pass over common, uh, stow areas to search somebody to see if they, if they had a weapon that, you know, you can't see just yet. Right. Yeah. Um, about so, seven, 16, 17 years ago, I had one of my very first, uh, real fights when I was a, a young patrol officer. Uh, I was, obviously I was armed. It went to the ground mm -hmm. and, um, the guy, I had a guy in a guillotine choke, and uh, he uh, he reached for and started tugging on my gun. And uh, mm -hmm. see, those are things that you don't have to worry about in the ring, in um, you know, right. in most environments, you know, where it's a sporting aspect. And a lot of what we do in our training is we use airsoft pistols, we use training knives, sure. uh, you know, we use anything that's available that that could be commonly used as a weapon. And, right. you know, I just, I, I kind of look at it as, as anything goes, obviously in our training we have to, uh, you know, be safe and we don't want to hurt each other, you know. But a big concept that we use in DTAC combatives is, is called stress inoculation or stress-induced training. Um, uh -huh. You know, what you do when you're in a relaxed mode is significantly different than when your sympathetic nervous system is activated, when you're scared uh, when you, you feel like you may lose this encounter, um, mm -hmm. your gross motor skills are about the only thing that you have to rely on. 
and you know right. all these fancy techniques that we've been practicing all these years all this fine motor skill and co uh, complex motor skill techniques are really just go out the window uh, and you're really left with uh, a lot less to work with and one of the big things I, that I have in a lot of the uh, the lectures that I give is we're reprogramming what comes natural because when you're in a critical stress incident you're going to be left with what comes natural you're not going to have a lot of time to think about all the techniques that you've done and practiced and all that you're going to do what comes natural and that's based on training so if your training is not correct if your training is not you know allowing you to become acclimated to stress induced environments you're going to fall short unless you're just yeah. fighting somebody that's extremely unskilled yeah and that's why i'm a big fan of of moving somebody from a an eye brain thinking kind of thing to uh to uh focusing more on their tactile sense their sense of feel yes. their sense of touch so yeah. once they learn a technique i don't care if it's mushadori or omotegyaku or any of those things um then we start to move to, uh, you know, can you find it by feel? When something falls, you yeah. know, a hand falls into the palm of your hand or their arm kind of gets stuck with yours. Do you know what you have? Do you know which of your toolbox uh, techniques, right, are even a possibility at that moment? And can you do it by feel? Because yes. a slight angle adjustment on an elbow changes something, you know, drastically, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, speaking of the, the, the incidents with the gun, um, you know, I'm I'm here today because I moved in time. I was wrestling with somebody, and this was way early in my career as well. Uh, wrestling with somebody trying to apprehend this guy, and with something stupid, he stole a radio. You know, um, chase this guy, catch him. Of course, I had been running, right? Which is one of those drills that we like to do with folks. Uh, even if we're yeah. just doing dojo training, I'll have him drop and do ten push-ups, stand up and spin around three times in both directions. And then their partner can punch at them or grab them or whatever. So everything's off, you know. The heart's racing, they're breathing, uh, everything's changed, right? But anyway, mm -hmm. uh, this guy uh, in the tussle pulled my 45, and we're in the mix of these things. And he had it on my skull, and I moved just enough when he pulled the trigger. So uh, you know that. So when I tell people that. Uh, powder burns are highly overrated. You won't feel them for a day and a half or two days, and <laughs> you know you're not gonna you know you're not gonna respond to muscle muscle flash or even the uh, the back flash that comes out when the when the slide moves or anything like that. You know, you and I both know that, that, that some of the things that you're teaching, regardless of well, whether you got that from another teacher or not, when it runs through the filter of people that have actually been in that bubble, it comes out different on the other side. Right. Yeah, so absolutely. Uh, it's kind of like when I was in the Army, I was taught early on that our training and field manuals were written by, and they're always updated, that they're written by the guys who survived actual combat. And you mm -hmm. can start to see when rules and regulations start getting passed by people because we haven't been in a conflict long enough, and then the ideas start to change, right? Like when the military switched from a forty-five which was designed to take somebody who was just hyped and overzealous off their feet, and we switched over to a 9mm, which has a very different uh, ballistic pattern and, and end result on the other end and, and things like that. It, it, just, it just starts to change, right? It, yep. Then it can become about 
money or, well, it's the new technology or whatever, and the original reason for the original technique and technology just goes right out the window. Yep. And I think that's what's missing from a lot of folks. Um, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that if you're in it for self-defense, you need to be training with someone who has either been there and has actual real-world experience or their teacher, their first direct teacher has, because you don't want to get more than one generation away from that knowledge because the farther yeah. away you get, the more theory creeps in, you know? It makes sense sitting around yeah. a table talking about how you would solve the world's problems or, you know, well, if he came at me like that, I'd kick him in the whatever, right? Um and, you know, once you've been there, you, you suddenly realize that what's, what's logical sitting around the table or chatting on the phone like this can be 180 degrees from what's really going to be the logical, rational answer in, the, in, that, in that zone or in that mix. So, yeah, it's very just like marksmanship. People... Sure. Yeah, yeah, so it's like the you, difference you... between marksmanship shooting and combat shooting. Um, sure. You know, it's it's easy to to do impressive things in a relaxed state, and especially mm-hmm. when you know all the parameters of the engagement. Uh, you know, oh, when sure. you don't know, when you're not expecting, you know, the attack, when you're not expecting the the suddenness of it, uh, everything changes, and that's why we don't train what I would call self-defense techniques anymore. Kind of like you know. Uh, well, I trained in Kempo for a while, and uh, you know, of course, they got a name, you know, like delayed sword and lone kimono, and but you know, the the fallacy of the training was is that we knew, okay, he's going to throw a right punch at me. I'm going to do this technique. He's going to stand there while I do this technique because he's going to be so overwhelmed with my martial awesomeness, he's not going to be able to do anything. <laughs> but we all know, yeah. Yeah. we all know that in a real fight with you know, with a person that's already amped up, they're or they they're not feeling pain. And let me right. tell you just firsthand that the drunk people can fight. Mm. They oh. can fight very and well. They're and they're amazingly strong. Well. They're yes. amazingly strong. Very, very Absolutely. strong and uh and they don't feel pain like the you know, you do from a normal state. Mm. You know, like they you say, need to make you something can't... Yeah, you need to make Go something ahead. not work. Exactly. Because you know, they're going to they're going to try exactly. to use it even if it's broken and it doesn't work. They're still going to try to use that piece. Yes. You know. And absolutely. they'll regret it later, but right then they pose a significant threat to you, and that's why we we drill. We take the tools that we use, um, and we drill. And so my my whole pitch about the whole that I think some people don't understand is I'm not telling you not to train Bujinkan. I'm not trying to tell you to not do Kempo or do Jiu-Jitsu, but it's the mindset and how you train which Mm. makes the difference. Because most martial arts have the same tools. It's just how you use them and how you train with them that really makes the difference. And we all know how to punch. I mean, well, at least I hope we do. You know, but, you know, if if you're stuck in a trying to recreate a tradition on battle tactics that are uh, hundreds of years old that in, in ways that people don't fight anymore, you know, I have to question that and how that's going to help me uh, on the street against somebody that's throwing bombs at me, you know, haymakers and uppercuts and really just, you know, coming in, you know, wanting to take me to the ground, uh, you know, 
I mean, I love Ichimanji and all these other Kamai as as much as any other person in the Bujinkan, and I've used it, you know, in avoidance. But you know, to me, Kamai is not about stances; it's about balance and motion. I'm constantly right. moving, and I tell my students in a real fight, if you're not moving, you're dying. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. You know, you kind of mentioned some of uh, uh, those different attacks there. That kind of leads me to, you know, my other question for you, which was, you know, with with your experience on the street and being in these various, uh, you know, uh, altercations and fights, what what would you say is kind of the most common type of attack or or form of initiating attack? Is it is it, do you most commonly tend to see somebody throwing? you know, a right hook, or are they trying to tackle you first to take you to the ground? Where where's it usually begin? Well, I've experienced a couple of different ones, but in different environments. Um, when I was working the street, I recall, you know, a couple of fights where the, the guys kind of just want to rush in and bent over and catch you around the waist and take you to the ground. Uh, and those were simple enough to deal with. Um, the... The things that I've encountered since I've worked in the bar as a, a floor guy or you know what some people call bouncer, uh, yeah, the right hook, that unexpected roundhouse punch is I see it all the time. Um, sometimes it may be you know, you know, prefaced with a shove or something, but they like hitting you without expectation. You know, I mean, you're not expecting it, uh, mm. and that's one of the things that drunk people do that I have to be very careful about is is they they have lost their sense of personal space they like to get really close to you um and then all it, these punches will come right out of the blue and so I always try to keep my distance from them but of course they keep you know hmm. keep getting wanting to get in on your personal space but if you've ever drank and you're hanging out with your buddies uh you know you know how you're face to face when you're talking and 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 that's you know what you what we're dealing with you know in the club scene but most of the time it's that unexpected roundhouse punch they just you know all of a sudden bam i've seen it so many times um and i just encountered it uh, probably about 2 months ago i was in a parking lot dealing with an individual who we were fighting and he was pretty passive initially until his buddy got there and that's where he got his courage. And then he started really throwing throwing bombs at me. And I had one of two choices, really. I could either go in or I could go out. And and at that time, I moved out. And, and if when I when I thought about it later, I was like, you know, I, I kind of moved into an Ichimanji type of posture, um, you know, to, to increase the distance between his fist and my face. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty close. It was pretty close. I, it, you know, an error on my part would have ended up me getting struck. But it was so sudden and so powerful, uh, there was no time for me to think about any complicated techniques. It was like, crap, I, I, this guy's throwing punches at me. You know, and mm. fortunately, you know, we were able to to get through that without becoming injured, um, you know. But I would say, quite honestly, that sucker punch, man, that's that's a big one for us out here in Kansas. You know, I'm not saying that's the way everybody fights, but that's that's a big one. No, I think that's a big thing for a lot of folks. And, and I was just covering that with my online uh, guys this morning that, uh, you know, we, we give you the, 
well, I give my guys this five, uh, what I call the five Ds to kind of help to make some sense out of the chaos and know where you are um, at any given point. But it's it's a kind of a glimmer. Uh, but it's quite possible that during that discern phase where you're trying to assess and figure out, you know, what's happening and what's next, you've already taken two shots or three shots or he's yeah. already, you yeah. know, tried to kick in the nuts or something like that. And so you've got this welt on your thigh, right? But, you know, it's, it is what it is, right? But everybody likes to start clean. You know, lots of folks don't like to get into a into a even a sparring or rondori kind of thing because you know it, it ends up being less pretty. Well, um, you know, are you in it for style? Or are you in it for function and practicality? So, exactly. Um, you know, and, That's and I was pretty strong thought, opinions about the not sparring. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was always uh, I was always taught from very early on. You know, we're we're teaching you these uh, come I as models, but. This is something that is going to happen in an instant as you avoid something and counter, and then it's going to be gone. You don't move around in this like a stance. I mean, it's called a yeah. kamai and not a dachi for a reason, right? It has its name. You know, it comes from something completely different. The whole concept is different. So, you know, if you try to push it into a stance mode, all you're doing is showing this guy how to kick your ass. I mean, you're, exactly. you're showing where your weaknesses are, where, you know, and – and what your quote unquote style is. So, uh, yeah, you know, you're giving way too much info. And, and if we understand that the Kamai are designed for specific types of attacks, you know, there's a reason that everybody tends to stick to that classical ski because, not just because that was the way that, that everybody punched in armor because of the weight and, and things like that, but that, you know, you're, all those angles are based on that straight line attack. So if you understand mm -hmm. that your angle and your positioning has to be relative to the line of the attack and not based on where you were just standing or not based on some preset uh, angle or position, then it's been my experience that the Kamai absolutely do work, but you have to take more into account than just, well, this is how I was taught and this is how the Kata works and this is how the, the Sanshin are, are taught. Well, you know, there's also this idea that there's three levels of transmission for every single technique and every scroll um, throughout the Bujinkan. But, you know, if if you, if who you bumped into um, or who you got your information, I don't mean you, this is a general you for everybody. Yeah, um, yeah. If who you got your information from, you know, never got out of what we would call first level transmission or never got out of basics, no matter what kata they're practicing, Right. If they never got out of that idea, if they never got, you know, the, the rest of the lesson, so to speak, the other 90 percent, then that's what they're going to be passing on. And right. now everybody's doing this soft training thing where it's all light touch. Well, that whole soft training thing came about because Hatsumi Sensei didn't want people causing injuries. He had all these foreigners coming to Japan. And if somebody yeah. gets injured in training, Who's paying for the medical, right? Who's doing all this stuff? It now becomes an international incident because a foreigner was injured possibly by, you know, a Japanese national, and he just didn't want the bad publicity. You yeah. know, so many people One were running them up with my... their own theories and crap like that that, you know, it just people were they they were trying to teach something they don't understand. Yeah. You know, whether it's I was just lecturing this to my students. That you know, one of the things that we we talk about is is passive training will not adequately prepare you for aggressive violence. 
Yeah, no. You 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 can't train passively and expect to overcome somebody with violence. Uh, you have to overcome violence with greater violence. Uh, remember, the bad guys already made the decision they're going to make. They already know that what they're going to do. And self-defense by its very nature is losing anyway. So we have to switch right. modes. We There's always going to be that, you know, that moment of confusion and shock, but we have to move beyond that. We have to switch modes. Now we have to become more violent than the bad guy. And something that Kelly McCann said that really stood out to me, uh, who's one of the my influences in combatives, is he said, this is not about blowing flutes and walking on parchment. This is about fighting. And we're talking about you know, a, the art of war on an individual basis or sometimes in a group basis, you know. And, yes, I appreciate, you know, the traditions, and I think they're they're great and they need to be preserved, but we can't mistake, you know, things, you know, we can't mistake real training for just, you know, preserving old ways. Well, I guess and, that's and what I'm trying true. to say. I'm not trying to insult them, but you know, it's, no, no, you no, gotta, we have to we have to make this relevant for today. Well, and people need to understand that that's what was being passed down. There was what, what was written down and passed was technology of the day, tactics yeah. and strategies based on the the types of attacks and the battlefield strategies and the types of armor and the types of weapons of the day. So the yeah. most traditional thing I can do as a ninja in the 21st century is one, not run around in a ninja outfit, two, convert, you know, sword training to knife training, long staff training to cane or baton or whatever, and Mm -hmm. shuriken throwing or arrows or whatever to handgun. I mean, it's just, you know, either way, you've got edge weapons, you've got, you know, blunt instruments, and you have projectile weapons. But you need to to change that. And if the types of attacks that were done – in 13th, 14th century, Korea, Japan, China, or whatever, don't match what's going on today, then it has to adapt. I mean, there's there's a whole, as a part of the tradition in history, and that's what's missing from a lot of people's training as well, nobody, everybody's passing on theoretical assumptions. No one's really looking at the history, and no one's really looking at, uh, well, they're looking at history for convenience, but they're not looking at the history of warfare, and not looking at the fact that, you know, certain things changed over time, like the Kosei no Kamai that the Kukishinden that's, that's in the Bujinkan now didn't mm-hmm. look like that way back in the day with armor. It looked more like Bobi no Kamai, right? So it's, right. Just, it's very, very different because armor changed, types of attacks changed, weaponry changed. You know, when they switched from the dachi to the katana, and you just had a much more refined weapon, that could cut through that original basket woven grass uh, and light wood kind of armor, um, or, you know, from way, way back, and it started to go to where metal was involved and all that. Everything had to change. The whole movement yeah. changed. Uh, I remember one year I was in Japan and we were training. The whole theme was on training with our taijutsu based on the armor and weaponry out of the Kamakura era as opposed to some other era. And the movement was completely different. When we did sword stuff, it was all about uh, the fact that the sword was less refined. So our uh, the, the sword work was much more like staff training. And then once the person was taken down, then what you had to do was find a gap and opening in the armor 
to where maybe where the carotid was or something, and then nick that and then move on. Mm-hmm. So it was more like beating a guy with a sword. So it was almost like club work or nightstick work as opposed to what people generally think of when it comes to katana or, you know, whatever. So um, I think that, that people need to get their head wrapped around that, you know, if you want to use something, it's great to learn from the original lessons, but you need to understand what the problem is and make sure that you're coming up with a solution that matches the problem. And I liked your comment yeah. about the not using something passive against something aggressive. And that's one of my one of my ins with companies when I do this whole workplace violence training because I'm not the talking head guy uh, that goes in and, and you know, uh, regurgitates OSHA things. I don't talk about prevention. Mm-hmm. I don't talk about reporting. And flat, I'll flat out tell a CEO to his face that I don't care about your prevention policies and I don't care about your reporting policies. And before you get upset and kick me out the door, you need to hear why. The reason why I don't care is because the guy who's attacking you in the moment doesn't care. As a matter of fact, if he just snapped and went off, anger, he's not thinking about anything other than strangling you or whatever he's going to do. If he came in from outside, current employee, ex-employee, terrorist, whatever, he's he's already taken all of those things that you have into account, right? He doesn't care about your zero tolerance policy. He doesn't care what you're going to do to him afterwards. And as far as that banned weapons on list site, he's counting on it, right? Mm. So he's already planned yeah. around all that stuff. So, um, you know, this, this idea that you can have somebody sign a non-aggression contract and that will stop him from doing things, you know, or this whole concept of a fair fight, I mean, that's an oxymoron, you know? So yeah. if we're talking about fairness and having rules, we're right back to it's a game. Right, and I get it. You're beating the crap out of each other, but you both volunteered to be there. You both are <laughs> trying to win a common prize, right? I mean, you know, if you're working security, you're working law enforcement. Yes, you volunteered to be there, but you're not trying to win uh, freedom. You know, he's like you said with the criminal. He's trying to keep his freedom. He's trying to make a point or whatever. All you're trying to do is your job and remove this violence from the area and protect everybody else from this, this individual. So that it's apples and oranges, right? Well, it's not even apples yeah. and oranges. It's apples and cinder blocks. So it's yeah. completely different. Yeah. And But people keep trying to shove it into the, you know, um, the, the same realm, that self-defense and fighting or sport fighting is the same thing. So I stopped yeah. using the, word self, or the term self-defense unless I'm generally conveying an idea. Typically, I use the, I use the word survival. And, yeah. and instead of self-defense, so yeah, we we uh, call it combatives, and uh, sure, with combatives, you know, it's our intent is is that now that we have no other choice to fight, we're going to become more violent than you, and until you know, until we overcome your level of violence and are able to, you know, de-escalate it. Um, yeah, we're we're not just not self defense. I don't I don't teach self defense any longer. I teach combatives, mm-hmm. and my my intention if I have to fight, if you put me in that position, my intention is is to to give you as much violence as I possibly can to prevail, and then you know stop when when necessary. And you know the thing that's not being taught in the dojos. Uh, you know, around uh, just the ones of, at least from my experience, 
is people are not teaching about what happens to you before the fight, in anticipation of the fight, uh, during the fight, and after the fight. And those are, you know, there's fear, there's anxiety, there's stress that comes from it. Uh, you're sure. going to be dealing with uh, perceptual narrowing. Obviously, your, you know, your your memory, your auditory, your visual, all those things are affected by, you know, your elevated heart rate, the activation of your your sympathetic nervous system. You know, there's a lot of stress that that happens to the average person. That uh, even even if you're accustomed to fighting, uh, you're still going to be affected and have different things that are going to occur. Uh, and that and that's what we train it with. The way I teach now, as opposed to the way it used to be, is I, I I teach based on the concept is you're not going to have a lot of time, if any, to make any decisions on what you're going to do. You're going to have to respond, and then you're going to have to keep responding and keep responding. This is not a game where we're t- taking turns. You know, once the violence begins, you have to overwhelm them with greater violence, greater ferocity. You have to become the predator until the threat is no longer there. Once that has diminished, then get away. You know, get away. What what would you say? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I I was just going to say. I I think that that um, I mean, what I tell my students very quickly is just that uh, their job to get away is, you know, the nice talk is you need to slow them down. You need to send him in a different direction, you need, whatever. But the reality is that you need to break parts of his body down as quickly as possible so he just can't function. Yes. You don't necessarily have to kill him, but you have to break him so that he can't continue to get at you. And yep, absolutely. I, I, I just don't think that people think about that because even when they look at karate matches or UFC or whatever, you know, it's the rare, quote-unquote, accident when somebody gets that damaged. But that's yeah. where you want to go. I mean, you, you need to shut something down. I don't care if it's hitting him in the floating ribs so it flexes things and his body, you know, it threatens his lungs so the body just folds and shuts down. Um, I don't care. But you have to go after something. And that's in all the lessons. It's in all these things. But the things have been so sanitized and sterilized that yeah. um, it's the rare person that is okay and not disturbed when they hear – this kind of talk where, you know, we're, we're nice guys where, we're you know, you can be safer with anybody else when you're around us. But at the same time, we can throw that switch and become somebody that our own families wouldn't want to be around in that moment. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it is what it is. Right? Uh, well, so. we've got about, uh, about 10 minutes left in the program, and I, I kind of quickly wanted to ask, too, kind of along the same discussion here, um, your experience of uh, what, you would, what you would say most of these attackers you've had to deal with, what do you think their experience level is at? Because, you know, I've always kind of had this thought or impression, uh, I, I do not have the, the real-world fight experience. I've never been in a full-on tussle uh, before. Mr. Miller heard me, talk, heard me talk about that many times, but... You know, I'm, I'm curious because I've always thought oh, we're in the dojo, we're training, and when we're when we're working with a partner, you know, we're working with somebody who's been training as well, and in many cases for a long time that we have. So, yeah, what are the odds you're going to run into somebody 
who's another martial artist out there who's been training this way. So really, what do those attacks look like from the common attacker on the street? I, I imagine it's wildly different. Well, today, things have changed significantly. It used to be, you know, you just had a brawler and you had the martial artist. Well, now with the popularity of MMA, you have a, a better fighter that we're dealing with in a lot of cases, and they're going to try to take you off your feet in a lot of, you know, from my experience, we have a lot of guys that come to the bar and they're wearing the American Fighter T-shirts and they're, they're mm. members of the local MMA club and they're built. Real, and these guys are, you know, lifting weights and, we're seeing a, a bigger threat uh, on average now. Of course, a lot of you know a lot of their their aggressions fueled by ego uh, and and perceived ability. Uh, you know, I've had to fight some of these people, and they're not as good as they think they are. I mean, none of us really are, but you know, I I see that the the fighter in our society is changing because of the popularity of MMA in the media and it's an inter, it's it's just a really really entertaining, you know, thing and people are wanting to attach themselves to that. So you know, you've got you've got young men and women that will join an MMA club locally and in and, and within 2 months they've got a fight scheduled. You know, and they may lose several, but what's happening is is they're becoming acclimated to fighting. Because in MMA training, it is resistance-based. And, yes, there are rules, but they're getting more out of their training than the average traditional martial artist is that's only focused on passive-based hmm. training. Now, we've distinguished there's a big difference between the street and, and MMA, which is a sport, which is a game. However, in the pecking order... I believe that MMA is above traditional martial arts in a lot of ways, not because of the techniques, but because of the way they train. Mm. You know, they are yeah. training against active aggression. And, and, you know, even though there are rules and boundaries, it's still going to get you a little bit farther than just, you know, floating like a butterfly and no resistance. And, you know, when I, I got the opportunity to train with Rob Renner last year in a little private session, he came out to Kansas and, uh, we met up at a park, and uh, it was just a, it, three or, yeah, there's three of us, and Hiromi and, and Rob came out. And, you know, he talked about the five levels of resistance of training that they, and he's talked about how their training in Japan is significantly different than what we're doing here in the States. And I don't know. I've never been there, so I have no way of really gauging this. But, you know, he talked about most of us are training at level one, which is pretty much where a lot of people, in the, unfortunately, within the Bujinkan are stuck at. He said, but there are other levels that you can increase that resistance in your training. Um, right, and, and he's, Yeah, and he really stressed that a lot of American Bujinkan practitioners are very anemic in their training because we're, we're not adding that resistance to it. And, you know, he, he proved it to me. It's like, all right. You know, do a mote gyaku on me. So he grabbed my lapel, and I couldn't do a mote gyaku on him. <laughs> now, of course, right, this is right. Rob Renner, and he knows how to counter it. But and then I, yeah. I thought, well, you know, what do I do now? But then right. I thought, well, if I 
give him an eye jab really hard, that would significantly change things. Yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. So, yeah, so there, you know, there's lots of training in the higher that, levels. Yes. There's yes. lots of training in the higher the, levels where, where if we get we get stung if we're not if if we didn't unbalance him if we didn't distract him if we didn't you know take the strength out of his arm or just we're trying to do the technique the, the wrong technique against the yeah. you know the, this kind of thing so uh, yes again you're right I, the, I I firmly believe that most people's things are, are anemic and the, the big thing you were talking about the with the MMA thing and the way they train and how it prepares them a little bit better for the street. Um, I remind my students of this all the time, and I'm sure Eric's heard this over and over again, that, you know, if there's one thing these people are getting out of it, regardless of whether they win or lose every single fight they ever have, they are getting used to getting hit. Yes. And you're going to have to hit them harder or in a different place or at a different angle or whatever. You're going to have to shake them up by doing something that they're not used to because they're used to getting hit in their head a lot. And if you think that that yeah. one shoot though to the side of their head is going to drop them, it better be to the right spot at the right place. But then again, you also have to be willing to, uh, or not, you have to be able to uh, justify your actions post incident to make sure you don't go get locked up. And two, you have to make sure that you're going to be okay with what it is that you're going to do to this person because yeah. a shoot to the right place is either going to leave some serious brain damage behind, or you're going to kill them. So, you know, and, and that's, that's the big thing again. Even though lots of folks in the Bujinkan are talking about, you know, how this is real and it's, you know, and, and that goes for any martial art. Um, I just don't think they get the, the idea that these were kill techniques that were yeah. passed down. There, there was no do-over. There was no, even like with MMA or UFC, where, you know, I, I want a rematch. No, there's no rematch. There's no yeah. I think where we're getting mixed up, I think mm-hmm. where people are getting mixed up is is that we forget that the art is for the man, not the man for the art. The art is to serve us, not right. us serve the art. And when the right. art has become more important than the individual using and 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 ad- adapting that art to them. Uh, right. You know, it's it's become all we're, all we're doing is we're just, you know, rehashing stuff, but we're not really uh, remaining relevant in today's world. And that's that's my sure. thing is I believe I love uh, Soke Hatsumi and what he teaches. I love the the, the traditions and and I love the, the science. There's an underlying science to all this that's just amazingly incredible. Uh, I love Shinden Fudo-ru and Kuka Shinden-ru and, these, you know, very jiu-jitsu, aiki-based styles within the Bujinkan teachings, um, you know, and there's such a great science there that if you explore it and you make it, this is what Papasan told me before he passed away. He's like, Jeffrey, make it your own. Make it your own. He's like, don't try to be like everybody else. Make it your that's own. That's the lessons. You know, and that will always that will always stay with me. Yeah. yeah and you know, and I had the the great opportunity to be uh become a student of of, of Sheehan Ed Martin. Uh and I'll right. always love and remember him. I mean, we built such a great friendship and bond. Uh, you know, and so I just got to say, you know, just uh how much I love and appreciate and most of all how much I miss him. But I've learned sure. a lot from him and um, you know, the times that he's come out to my school 
Um, you know, it's it's been an incredible time. But the one thing that I really liked was he said, Jeffrey, make it your own. Right. Okay. Uh, boy, we're right on time at the moment. There was a quick, <laughs> um, actually, uh, uh, Josh gave me a way out um, for yeah. his. So, Josh, I'm going to have to answer that question uh, later on, but I, I, it's about resilience. Uh, I'm, well, actually, I'm going to give you a quick answer. Uh, Josh's quick question here was, in recent years, we've started hearing more about the idea of resilience and its, and its benefits, uh, though it's, of course, not a new idea. Given that resilience embodies the spirit of the ninja in many ways, do you think this is a quality that can be cultivated? How so? Um, I'm going to say yes, but it's a tempering process, kind of, kind of like making a strong sword. And we've been talking about this that this entire uh, episode. Uh, I think that resilience is born out of encountering and working your way through challenges because it's that school of hard knocks that allows you to be adaptable. Okay? Sitting around the table and oming your life away or doing theory, um, you can you can imagine resilience, but it's not until you actually have to overcome the worst possible thing, and even worse than you can imagine at the moment, um, and learn that, you know, being steadfast on a given path um, isn't always the best avenue. Sometimes the best avenue is having the ability to create plan B, C, F, X, whatever, and, you know, you keep your eye on the on the end result, even if it's just getting through it, and being adaptable, being resilient, being able to, uh, you know, and that's really what the NIN of Nijitsu is really about. It's not just perseverance and endurance. It's, it's having things happen to you. Um, ukemi, right? We, when we normally think of ukemi, we think of doing break talks, right? But yeah. ukemi itself is a concept, the receiving body, right? It, that actually, there's, a, there's a mental ukemi, there's a spiritual, emotional ukemi. It's the ability to have things done to you, and you can mitigate the damage as much as possible. Not that you're not going to feel mm-hmm. anything, but that you neutralize as much as possible because you're going with it. But that's not, see, when we talk about natural, the natural instinctive thing is to push back against resistance or to push back against, you know, a push or a force. And so it's not natural to just kind of go with things, but it's the ability to keep your head about you. And I don't think yeah. that that's possible without going through it. I mean, you know, Josh, I know Josh has had another baby and stuff. And you just, you can have all the theories in the world about marriage and parenthood and all that kind of stuff, but it's not until you are actually there that you understand what being resilient and and adaptable and, and you know, what kind of, problems you're going to have to navigate uh, until you're there, which is why I would never go to somebody who's never been married, regardless of what their credentials are, for marital advice, ever, <laughs> or who's never been a parent, for parenting advice, ever, okay? Nor do I take advice from somebody who only has one line on parenting, like, you know, there's no ever, ever corporal punishment, or there's no ever, ever this, or, you know, whatever. And, uh, okay, great. If you have children, and that's always worked for you, then I would say that you should consider yourself very, very lucky because, karmically speaking, you had a child that you didn't need any other option for. So, congratulations. But I've had several, and none of them are the same. And the same things didn't work. Whether it was a motivator, 
a reward or a punishment. So it had to be adaptable, right? So, but I, 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 for me, if you're going to develop resilience and you're going to cultivate it, you have to put yourself into situations where you have to be resilient. It's kind of like being confident, right? You build confidence by successfully resolving scary things and knowing that you're going to be okay. Okay? So if it didn't scare you, it's not building resilience. That's my take, right? So and I, we don't have a lot of time for you to toss this to Jeff because I know he's got his own thing as well. And then Noah sent in a quick question here uh, about uh, what do you think, uh, let's see, why do you think people say that you aren't a ninja unless you went on a mission for a daimyo, I believe, being a ninja in your heart? Now, I think it's somewhere in between there because there were guidelines in ancient ninja for, or in ancient Japan for what it really was to be a ninja. There were these eight minimum study areas, which, again, I believe have to be updated for the 21st century. We've been talking about that this whole show. Uh, but at the same time, just believing that you are something doesn't make it so. Because I can believe that I'm an astronaut, but that doesn't make me capable of operating the machinery, the equipment, or surviving once the atmosphere goes away. Okay. So, uh, again, we can, we can pass that on to uh, next show and dive into that even more. But also these questions give me other fodder for uh, doing uh, articles or whatever. So. You'll, you'll hear more about these things uh, in the process. But, uh, Noah, this isn't me pushing my program or whatever because there's lots of free stuff out there on my YouTube channel and on YouTube articles and all that. I, I cover a lot of these things. Uh, but I have a whole program called the Ninja no Hachimo, which is about the minimum eight study areas that were required in ancient Japan for anyone or any school to say that they were actually a ninja school uh, and how that would look in today's world. So if you're interested, there, there's a smaller ebook kind of thing. Uh, contact me about that. And if you want to look at the 10-week uh, intensive program, you can do that as well. But either way, um, hope that was enough to kind of give you something to think about, both for Josh and Noah. Um, otherwise, uh, let me just refresh this thing here quickly. I would tell Josh, uh, yeah, just keep listening to the show every week, Josh. You'll get more resilient. Yeah, like Josh it, doesn't, right? <laughs> you're, you're already more resilient just for tuning in every time. I agree. You're putting, uh, you're putting up with this. <laughs> uh, yeah, so just a couple of comments that came in while, uh, while Jeff was doing his thing. Uh, things about callousing their fingertips. Uh, does that interfere with energy sensitivity, such as in Reiki? You know, it's bad for going around in the dark. Um, I'm not a big fan of all those callousing kind of things because my wife would appreciate if I didn't scrape off her her, uh, her face when I uh, caressed it or whatever. So uh, I guess it depends on how hard and battle ready you want to be. Uh, there were some tips that, that some folks post, posted. What we'll do um, is I'll I'll copy and paste these to the Qdet page uh, for folks that uh, want to check into these things. Uh, so anyway. Um, Cool beans. All, All right. right. Uh, Jeff, thanks for being a part of this. I really yeah, appreciate thank you. it. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. Not a problem. All right. Uh, Eric, uh, I guess I'll talk to you again next week. I'm All right, yeah. California Everybody uh, have a great <laughs> week and uh, stay safe. Thanks for joining us again on Kuden. Thank you for listening to Kuden the podcast for self-defense and martial arts news, interviews, techniques, and history. 
For more information on upcoming martial arts seminars, camps, and classes with Sheehan Miller, or to submit a question or discussion topic to the show, call 570-884-1118 or visit warrior-concepts-online.com. 